Lord Vader's shuttle has arrived. Vader, this is an unexpected pleasure. We're honored by your presence. Yo, G, I'll be here to see why your homies ain't working their booties off. I assure you, Lord Vader, my men are working as fast as they can. We be seeing if they get this ride going with six foot seven of black staring down them. I tell you, this station will be operational as planned. Well, the man don't think so, and he be cruising down here to check out this ride. The Empress coming here? Yeah, and he gonna put a cap in your white ass. We shall double our efforts. Damn straight. And remember, this be CNN. Good afternoon, I'm Franklin, and this is Vertically Grok. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, global warming, carbon emissions, and ancient footprints. Joining us this week is Sir John Gurdon to talk about developmental biology, and we'll also find out what the Gibbs Free Energy is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on Berkeley Grok's. Back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Link, and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Hey, happy April Fool's Day! <laughs> you know, I'm all I'm a constant fool, so the whole year is like an April Fool's year for me. I think the world's just one cruel joke to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cruel joke to everybody, which is the cruelest joke of all. So sad. So uh, actually, there may be hope for people who have cancer, though. So maybe it's I a little some hope for uh, people who think it's a cruel joke. Yeah, well, that's no joke, I think. So. It turns out dogs may actually be a very good screener for cancer. Well, what they would sniff it out like pigs sniff out truffles. Something like that. Essentially, it's been shown that for a lot of people who have cancer or cancerous tissue, they tend to emit in trace amounts some alkanes and benzene derivatives. Hmm. And these dogs can be trained to detect and pick up very easily. Oh, wow. But that's got to be like, you know, parts per million of those types of Actually, parts per trillion. Oh, man. But uh, it shows the dogs have extremely sensitive noses. What they shown was, you know, in a group of 55 lung cancer patients, 31 breast cancer patients, and uh, 83 healthy people, they trained three dogs to identify their breasts. And afterwards, they had a double blind tests to see which ones the dogs could pick up who had cancer or not. Uh-huh. And with the lung cancer patients, they were able to correctly identify 99% of the time. And with the breast cancer patients, 88% of the time. Uh, that's incredible. I mean, I'm surprised they haven't tried to develop some kind of artificial nose to sniff out these chemicals as well. Well, I mean, even, you know, the best artificial nose, their sensitivity is nowhere close to what we have in nature yet. Right. And, I mean, this is probably one of the holy grails in molecular sensing. Yeah. I wonder if they can train doctors to sniff it out as well. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> Although you might be misconstrued sniffing out near breasts, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
But this sort of offers an alternative and perhaps even a more accurate way to place mammograms and you know, other expensive and actually not completely effective scans that they have right mm. now. So this is supported in the recent edition of Integrative Cancer Therapies, and this was uh, carried out by the Pine Street Foundation in San Elsimo, California. All right, well, I guess going from sniffing out gases to actually trapping gases. Well, like adsorption kind of a thing? <laughs> it is adsorption, and uh, especially when you have leaky gases, you certainly want to do that. Oh, so basically we can adsorb all the unnatural gases coming out of our pipes, huh? <laughs> well, maybe not out of your pipes, but certainly out of pipes that are in power plants anyway. Oh, in power plants. So it turns out that approximately 40% of the carbon dioxide released in the United States came from electric power plants. Right, most of them coal. Right. There's a big push to try and absorb or at least capture some of the pollution that's actually being emitted by these power plants. Yes. Group uh, led by Omar Yagi and Andrew Millward at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor have developed a couple of zinc and copper frameworks uh-huh. uh, combined with organic materials uh-huh. that can absorb the uh, CO2 into their structures. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it's very interesting, and it can hold up to nine times its uh, weight of CO2. Wow, must be a high surface area there. They say the interaction of the CO2 with the framework of this particular molecule particularly compensates for the repulsion you get from CO2 right. going against each other. So I understand, I guess, these sequestration techniques are quite controversial since there have been one or two isolated incidents of actually these things abruptly leaking from the uh, material that they're supposed to be sequestered in. So kind of burping. Burping. Actually, in one very dramatic case, they've shown somewhere, I guess, in the East Coast, entire roads where the ground completely burped, and you can see the uh, road completely shattered. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Very dramatic. Take some antacid in that case. And... But it goes to show you that even if this is a good way to, to limit our CO2 emissions, there's probably more studies that should be undertaken. Right, right. And uh, certainly I think they're still working on trying to see if they could scale this up to see if it'll actually be viable, right. both practically and economically. Yeah. But that remains to be seen. But again, it's just steps in the right direction, hopefully, to uh, reducing our emissions. Of course, they've been taking that for years, but, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen? <laughs> Anyway, anyone interested in this, they can take a look at the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Jax. All right, so speaking of CO2 and greenhouse emissions, mm-hmm. it's now official that 2005 is the second warmest year on record. The second year, warmest year? Yes. Is that because of global warming, or is it just the natural cycle of... Uh, most likely it's global warming, although, I mean, with these models, never completely sure, but most of the um, of the scientists would uh, agree that humans are actually uh, contributing to most of these changes right now. Well, I mean, I, I remember growing up as a kid in my hometown, you'd have snowdrifts as big as my head. Uh-huh. Of course, I was only three feet high at the time, but... Right. <laughs> You know, they were quite impressive, but now nothing. Wow. So if you look at the actual measurements, it seems that our global temperature is about half a degree Fahrenheit warmer than the so-called long-term average. Some very other interesting uh, things have been observed. So it turns out the Arctic is warming seven times faster than the southern two-thirds of the globe. From the records they have for the past 27 years, the Arctic has heated up by 2.1 degrees, whereas the tropic has only warmed by 0.3 degrees. Guess I better go up there and buy beachfront property soon. <laughs> I imagine, you know, is, is there any part of your body that warms sometimes faster than the, uh, another part? But this is actually contrary to what a lot of uh, computer models predict about the uh, warming phenomena. So this is a mystery that still has to be solved. Why, instead of tropics, why the Arctic is actually warming faster than the tropics? Hmm. 
you know, the mystery still remains, but obviously we still need to do something about trying to chill out the planet a little bit. Just take it easy. And this was reported by John Christie, director of the Earth System Science Center at the University of Alabama. All right, well, I guess with all that global warming, kind of makes you wish you uh, were living back, oh, say, 45,000 years ago. <laughs> Was it chilly or hot then? <laughs> I don't know. It just seemed like a simpler time. <laughs> Grab the food that's growing on, out of the trees, right? And, uh, perhaps we might still be swinging in the trees. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently a group of researchers now in Australia have found the oldest recorded footprints from about 23,000 to about 19,000 years ago uh-huh. in a lake bed known as the Willander Lake System. And it's quite fascinating because they found a combination of approximately 76 footprints preserved in the uh, ancient mud of the ground there. So how do they know they're actually people and that they're that, in fact that old? Well, they found the iPods with them. So, oh, <laughs> you know. okay, of course. <laughs> of course, it was a Stone Age iPod. <laughs> well, it was on their playlist. <laughs> uh, what it turns out is took measurements of these footprints, which obviously look like human footprints based on their size, impression, etc. Mm-hmm. They measured the stride and all these type of things, and they could determine from that an estimation of what the height of these individuals were like, and also presumably some of them were running, and they could determine how fast they could run. And it turns out some of them could run as fast as about 12 miles per hour, which is comparable to long-distance runners currently. Right. And it shows older examples of when humans had evolved in Australia. Wow. So we've been here a long time then. Maybe not here, but certainly in Australia anyway. It was published in a recent edition of the Journal of Human Evolution. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM, KALX. In a few moments, Gordon Campbell joins us and talks with Sir John Gordon on developmental biology. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks, and today we have our special correspondent, Dr. Gordon Campbell, with this week's interview with Sir John Gordon. Gordon? 
Today we're fortunate enough to have with us in the studio Sir John Gurdon. Gurdon is a professor of cell biology at the University of Cambridge, and this is a mouthful, a researcher at the Wellcome Trust Cancer Research Gurdon Institute of Cancer and Developmental Biology. In addition to being knighted for his services in developmental biology, he's received a list of awards and honors, and his research is the subject of every biology textbook. When we think of nuclear cloning, we think of Dolly the sheep. However, Gurdon and his contemporaries developed techniques for cloning frogs long before the conception of Dolly. This year marks, in fact, the 40th anniversary of the publication of Gurdon's remarkable achievement, obtaining fertile adult frogs through nuclear transplantations from differentiated cells. Welcome, John Gurdon. Thank you. As I understand it, your early experiments led to two remarkable achievements. Uh, the first was producing clones from an adult animal, and the second was having these progeny mature to adulthood. What enabled you to make these achievements where others had not? Well, um, let me first just comment on the first of those two comments. You, you said cloning from an adult animal. I have to correct that slightly by saying that we actually did not do that. What we cloned from was a differentiated cell. In other words, a cell that had become highly specialized, in, in our particular case, the intestine cell, and that did indeed produce fertile adult male and female animals. And that was the, the, the real point there was that as a cell achieves its final differentiation, in this case into intestine cells, it can nevertheless uh, have its nucleus uh, be reprogrammed, as we call it, to go right back to the beginning again. And the the really important conclusion from that work, and indeed the reason it was done at all, was to answer the question of whether, as cells specialize, they still retain a complete set of genes. And that was the, really the major outcome of that work. So it says that even when a cell has become specialized, nevertheless, its nucleus has the complete set of genes, most of which are never needed for the life of that cell. So that is, that's the first point. Now, what, can you remind me what the second oh, one is? So um, <coughs> that these progeny mature fully yes. to adulthood and um, were fertile. That is the, uh, correct. And that was the first time that there was a um, this so-called cloning, which achieved normal adult sexually mature animals uh, to show that the, the, there is a total normality I see. about the result of this so-called cloning experiment. What enabled you to make such an advancement in, um, in this work where right, others well, had not been able to? Yes, well, one should say that the, the early work in this, the first work that really set this in motion, was that of two people from this country called Briggs and King, who worked with the American frog, and they did succeed in transplanting a nucleus out of an embryonic cell into an egg and getting normal larvae from it. The curious thing is that when they tried that using cells that had progressed a bit further, along the developmental pathway uh, on their way to becoming endoderm or gut, they no longer got any normal development at all. And they concluded, as indeed I would have done if I'd had those results, that this meant that the nuclei from specializing cells were no longer totipotent and could not substitute for the egg and sperm nucleus. So that was the background, and when we did our experiments, we, we found, on the other hand, that you do get uh, completely some, not, not a great many, but some completely normal uh, sexually mature adult animals from the nucleus of a cell that had completely specialized. 
So what was your secret? I don't think there's a special secret, except that uh, it was a different species of frog, and I think everyone accepts that the conclusion we drew is true, and perhaps it is just that the animals that uh, Riggs and King used were less suited for these experiments, and I happened to give that kind of conclusion. I see. God. What are the challenges that a nucleus faces when it's transferred from a fully differentiated cell into an oocyte? Well, I think I think there are indeed challenges. It's a good way of putting it um, for several reasons, well, uh, the most obvious of which is that as a nucleus becomes part of a specializing cell, its genes undergo a number of modifications which keep those genes off and uh, inactive, that's to say, not expressed. And the most obvious of these is a chemical mark called methylation which is um, applied to the DNA in genes which are no longer needed in development. So when you do a cloning experiment, as they call it now, that has to be reversed. And uh, there is no normal procedure by which in, in our normal life that reversal takes place. So the, the egg which you use as the reprogramming agent has actually a way of reversing that process. So this whole business of cloning and uh, therapeutic uh, uh, cell replacement, the area it leads to, all depends on having to reverse the specialized state of the nucleus of a cell. Clones, whether they're frogs or sheep, suffer from <coughs> developmental defects and premature aging. Mm. And what are the causes of these such defects? Right. They, they, they're probably of two kinds. One sort is when you take the nucleus of a specialized cell that cell is usually not dividing at all frequently, maybe once every two days or so. When you transplant the nucleus, at least into amphibia, it has to replicate its chromosomes and divide in an amazingly short time, like an hour and a half. And it sometimes doesn't achieve that. It's such a sudden switch in life, it doesn't achieve it. And in mammals, the more compelling reason seems to be that some of these genes which are switched off are simply not switched on efficiently within the time available when they go into the egg. So although the, the rejuvenation, as you might call it, or reprogramming does work, it isn't by any means completely efficient. Mm -hmm. It sometimes doesn't. We don't know uh, just at the moment why it works sometimes and why it doesn't work other times. I see. But that is that's thought to be one of the constraints. Cloning these days has created quite a sensation, mostly because of the belief that these techniques will be applicable to humans. Can you describe the sentiment towards the idea of cloning at the time when you published your first experiments? And in particular, was there any serious speculation back then that what works for frogs might work for humans? I think there was. In the mid-1960s, I was um, interviewed by a number of people who often come over from this country to talk about the experiments, and they did say, well, is this going to work with humans? And of course, you never know. Mm -hmm. So I, my own attitude at the time was, well, in principle, it, it must be possible, because once you've established that the genes are present in all cells, which is more or less the case, when we understand everything, it, it simply must be possible to reverse the process. But then they say, when? Uh, how can you ever begin to right. guess? It right. could be one year, 10 years, 100 years. Right. It turned out to be 40, but uh -huh. <laughs> you couldn't guess that timing. Why was it so long? Yes, that's an interesting question too, and it has a lot to do with the fact that the people who were working very hard on the problem, and I should say I had a PhD student in the 1960s working on really? it with, with rabbits trying to do this. Amazing. It didn't work very well, or hardly at all, but, and, and then in the 1980s people had another serious attempt at that, and one reason turns out to be that they tried transplanting a nucleus into the fertilized egg 
of a mouse uh, and I rather see. than the unfertilized one. We used I unfertilized see. eggs. And that turns out not to work, uh, in effect. The, once the egg has been fertilized, it, it, it's not prepared to receive this rather substantial disruption by having another nucleus put into it. Exactly why they did not copy exactly the amphibian experiments with unfertilized eggs isn't entirely clear to me because it, it took a considerable further time before that uh -huh. was done. But it, the fact is it works pretty well with unfertilized eggs and doesn't work well with fertilized eggs. Interesting. That, that uh, delayed progress for quite a bit of time. So some, there must be some factor that is present early on that disappears. I think it's more later. likely that the synchrony between the, um, the cycling phase of a nucleus and that of the recipient egg is um, adjustable when you use an unfertilized egg. It hasn't even started, so it's prepared to start when you, when it, when it, when you ask it to do so. Once it's got underway, it's very reluctant to, to switch this cycling pattern to accommodate a nucleus that's not in accord with it. What would you see as the potential benefits that we might gain from conducting human nuclear transfer research, and do these benefits outweigh the dangers? Right. The, the ultimate benefits, if I were allowed to look really far of ahead, course. would be that we would eventually be able to take a skin cell from, say, you, and take its nucleus out, add factors which we by then would have identified from an egg, egg reprogramming factors, and directly switch that skin cell into an embryonic cell, which gives it the potential to replace any other kinds of cells. So you, you rejuvenate the cell directly, rather than having to use a human egg to do it. So that, that's the, what I would say is the long-term objective. But I think you said what, did you say what constraints there are or something? Oh, I said what, what um, let's see, would these, uh, would these benefits outweigh the potential dangers of cloning? Yes, okay, so the potential dangers, I think they're largely over overestimated, overstated, and the one that usually is put forward is that, um, that scientists will find out how to do this and they'll make um, clones of thousands of Hitlers. Right. Uh, it's completely unrealistic, mm -hmm. in my view, and if they did, they wouldn't behave like Hitler and Adolf Hitler did. So, so that's an, an unrealistic worry. Mm -hmm. Another one would be <coughs> that people try to reproduce humans this way, and most of the resulting products of such a procedure will be defective, and at present standards they mostly would. So that, those, those are the disadvantages, but they're avoidable, I see. not by law, but just by practice. And the benefits could be very considerable. It's what we call therapeutic cloning, where you, you get rejuvenated uh, embryo cells of your own genetic constitution, and that's key. Right. So you can give yourself back rejuvenated cells of your own kind, because if they you, you can, you know about embryonic stem cells which exist and you can supply those to people but they're genetically incompatible right. with the recipient. Now the real point of this technique is that you um, a cell which is of the same genetic constitution as yourself and if you're given it back there will be no uh, immunological suppression needed. So what types of diseases could well, you expect to cure? Well that's a difficult thing. The, um, I mean it's, uh, the, there are uh, heart, uh, pancreas, uh, many tissues in the body have no natural replacement. Uh, uh, we can regenerate liver quite well. I see. Though not an, not an alcohol, alcohol liver, but uh, many uh, skin regenerates uh, quite mm -hmm. well, blood does, and, but there are many things that don't. And so I suppose we would hope that some neurological diseases, perhaps heart, could, could be considerably helped by having uh, replacement rejuvenated cells. 
So what do you see as the ideal governmental policy towards nuclear transfer and embryonic stem cell research? So I think there's much too much uh, unnecessary concern on, on the ethical level about this. But let me say one thing, that I, if you really want to make this technique work, it would be foolish to try and spend a large amount of time working with human embryos and human eggs because the principles will, will turn out to be almost certainly the same. And so one should mm-hmm. do experiments on mice or any, any animal just mm-hmm. to work out how it all is. And then finally, when it works quite well there, one would want to switch to humans. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there is any ethical constraint about doing this work on mice. And so I don't right. believe there's any serious, uh, serious hold up at the moment. And eventually people have to find out the differences between a human egg and a mouse egg. They, they'll be different like they are for in vitro fertilization. But and I, I think there's no reason why the government should have any concern at all. The dangers are minimal in my view mm-hmm. and, and not worth the time trying to legislate about them. I see. Well, thank you very much. That was very interesting. Hey, thanks a lot, Gordon. And that was Gordon Campbell with Sir John Gordon on developmental biology. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM, KALX. In a few moments, we'll find out what the Gibbs free energy is, plus the world-famous question of the week. So stay tuned. Gives free energy free, you know what I mean, like. And I'm moving around, but yet I'm kind of disordered. And dude, it's like heat and entropy. They combine to make the Gibbs free energy free, brother. Hmm, and Yoda with this week's question of the week. Geophagy, a mystery it is, but what does it do? Hmm, good food, good food. If you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything. <clears throat> when 800 years you are, look as good as me you will. Mm. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Link. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.